que j'aime voir chez Michael Schumer. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Nice to see you and uh, hope you're doing well. Human progress. I guess we've uh, we've been challenged on that uh, thesis for the last six months or so. Well, let's hope it continues. Um, you are obviously uh, the uh, editor of the Skeptic magazine. And so I want to talk to you about a number of different things, um, including some of the very interesting conspiracy theories that are floating around the world about COVID. And uh, so that I don't butcher the quote, uh, here is one that I found on NPR. Um, with, with people believing that COVID-19 pandemic is part of a strategy conceived by global elites, such as Bill Gates, to roll out vaccinations with tracking chips that would later be activated by 5G technology used by cellular networks. So let's start with that. Um, where do these conspiracy theories come from and what do you make of them? Well, they come from the imaginations of uh, people who are very conspiratorially minded. Now, in terms of response, here I, I invoke Hitchens' dictum, as I call it, when Christopher Hitchens said uh, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. That is to say, anybody can say anything. You could say the aliens uh, planted COVID-19 uh, on our planet. So what? Um, where's your evidence? And if you don't have any evidence, then we don't have to respond. Because there's, there's really no response to conspiracy theories that are unfalsifiable. That is, you can't refute them, you can't test it or anything like that. And there's no evidence. It's, it's just a made-up story. But things like um, uh, like the 5G networks, that, that was an interesting one that that happened that way because it was just a, 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 an accidental conjunction between two completely independent things, COVID-19 and the rollout of 5G. And it's not like there's anything special about 5G other than it's more powerful and, and, and dispersal in, in its extent than 4G, and, and, and that's more than 3G, and so on, all the way back. All the way back to flip phones. Remember the, the 1990s Motorola flip phones that looked like the Star Trek communicators? There were conspiracy theories around that, you know, that, and, and also a cancer, you know, cancer cluster scares, you know, that, that people that at this time, not everyone had a cell phone or a you know, one of these flip phones. So there seemed to be a cluster of people that had brain tumors and that used the flip phone. So there was this fear that, you know, somehow the the radiation from the cell phone uh, was causing tumors. Although we showed even back then that, that, that cell phones don't give off enough energy to break the chemical bonds in cells that would cause tumors to, you know, mutations to lead to cancerous tumors and that sort of thing so you know that that's just nonsense um and 5g is just another version of that it's not enough energy to to cause something like covid 19 in any case covid that's not quite the argument though to be fair to them their argument is that 5g energy weakens the immune system making you more susceptible to the uh, virus that causes covid 19 something like that but there's still no evidence for that and in any case the counterfactuals refute it that is countries and areas that have uh extensive covid 19 and no 5g and there's places that have no 4g 3g they got nothing and and still they have covid 19 so that counterfactual then refutes that particular argument as for bill gates i mean he's been a target of conspiracy theory since the 80s you know when microsoft really was trying to take over the world of of software engineering 
And, uh, you know, but of course, the moment you have anybody that's powerful and has a lot of money, uh, conspiracy theorists glom onto that. So, you know, now Jeff Bezos is, has more money than, than Gates. So now he's becoming a target of conspiracy theories, particularly as Amazon is one of only two or three big influential online retailers. Uh, of course, they're going to be targeted for conspiracy theories because that's normal. Conspiracy theories go after big governments, big corporations, big pharma, you know, and so on. And by the way, big pharma, that's also rolled into this whole COVID-19 because of the, the you know pharmaceutical uh, chemicals that we might take, like uh, hydroxychloroquine or the coming vaccine. And, you know, I know you wanted to talk about vaccines because that's going to be another huge one. Uh, you know, we need a vaccine. The COVID-19 virus, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is not going away. I think pretty much everybody agrees on that. We're, we're going to be, ha we'll have it forever. And it may mutate into a more uh, moderate virus, uh, something like the seasonal flu. But it, anyway, it's not going away, so we need a vaccine. Now, so then you get to this issue of security versus freedom. And people have a peculiar idea about freedom. I should be free from having to take a vaccine or having to wear a mask or whatever. Uh, but that's that's not what freedom means. I mean, uh, as as you well know from from having studied this, you know, uh, Thomas Hobbes laid out the first argument for um, a social contract in which we give up certain freedoms to have safety and security. So the simplest analogy I make with with wearing masks or or, or a vaccine is, you're not free to drive on the opposite side of the road, right? You give up that freedom in order to be safe from drivers hitting you. And uh, and so the freedom to swing your arm ends at my nose. You're not free to do anything you want. We give up all sorts of freedoms. So I think it's just what people get used to. And the vaccine thing is also has another element to it that it's it's counterintuitive that I'm going to put a little bit of poison or toxin or germs in my body. And somehow that's going to make me uh, more protected from the more uh, viral form of this germ. You know, to a lot of people, that's like, what? That, that just doesn't sound right. Even though it works, you know, we have a, over a century of data showing that this is one of the greatest inventions of all time. I don't know. I, I think you might have the numbers of this. How many hundreds of millions or billions of people have been saved or at least not suffered as much from having vaccines? And yet people still feel like you can't force me to do it. I should be free to not get vaccinated. And that, you know, that's a tough issue. So. There are obviously limits to uh, people's appreciation of science and understanding of science, but are you in a way pleased or encouraged by the fact that when COVID outbreak happened, uh, people didn't start sacrificing to gods or self-flagellating <laughs> yeah. or something like that? Um, people immediately turn to science and scientists and we expect them from 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 Europe to North America to Africa to Asia people are looking towards scientists to come up with new ideas uh, we are not in some sort of a uh, uh, grip of a religious fervor unless you want to talk about the political um, uh, political situation in the country we will get to that later um, but are you encouraged by that isn't, isn't this uh, a, a proof positive that humanity has now internalized a scientific view of the world or am yeah, i being too optimistic yeah. no no i think you're i think you're realistic um uh, i don't also i don't like the word optimism because it, it, it implies that we're blind 
uh, to the facts, and we just you know go around thinking your glass is half full, no matter how empty it actually is. We're realists, you know. That the, the data shows that things are getting better, and you know, in this particular case, we are centuries away historically in the Western world, anyway, centuries away from you know blaming the gods or the witches or the demons uh, for plagues and diseases like this. But in a way, consp uh, cons conspiracy theories are kind of like a secular religious um, target for explaining the origins of the virus, something like that. But I agree with you that very few people, it's a small minority of people, unfortunately, they, they have their own web pages, so they get a lot of media attention. But most people want to follow the dictates of what scientists say. Even someone like Trump, who you know see, seems to often defy his scientific advisors? It's only when he thinks it's going to go against his reelection or or some political reason. Otherwise, you know he's kind of a germaphobe and and he and you know he, he follows most of the dictates of science. Most politicians do in both parties as long as the scientific finding isn't pushing one of their hot button issues. So, for example, uh, climate change has, because of Al Gore and his film, An Inconvenient Truth, climate change has kind of become associated as a left-wing liberal cause. And therefore, if I'm uh, defining myself by my political affiliation with the right, I'm going to go against that just because that's what I'm supposed to do <laughs> as, a, as a member of the team on the right. Um, uh, and, and so, but, but, so it, it will appear that Conservatives and Republicans are anti-science, but liberals are just as bad when it comes to hot-button issues for them, like GMOs and nuclear power. They're just as irrational and deny science deniers as Republicans are uh, when it comes to those particular issues, because that's a hot-button issue for them. But if you take out those, then most people, most of the time, accept the science. We climb aboard airplanes without thinking twice about it and fly at 35,000 at 600 miles an hour we gladly use our, our our cell phones and our laptops and 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 drive our cars and so on and and we accept all the science and engineering and math behind those without question so it's really only those particular subjects now as a keen student of psychology um why do you think that uh, people simply cannot accept that bad things just happen I mean, we were talking about conspiracy just now. Yeah. Why do yeah. you think that people people always see some control mechanism behind what's going on in the world, uh, rather than just accept that in the world, which is generally getting better, uh, you know, some things are simply going to go wrong somewhere at some time. What do you think is going yeah. on in the human mind? I think there's several um, components to that. One I call patternicity, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in random noise. Uh, we're not good at detecting randomness, right? So if you give uh, subjects listening to, uh, you know, just with earphones on, listening to uh, uh, signals, you can give them random noises, little blips that are totally random, and they'll they'll find a, a pattern. They'll hear a pattern of some kind. Same thing with dots on a screen, and and you just take it up from there of any kind of patterns. We tend, you know, the scene, the you know, the dragons in the clouds, or the face of Jesus on a tortilla, or the Virgin Mary on the side of a building, you know, these are just random. Um, you know, stains and, and blotches that our brain sees, particularly faces, you know, the fusiform gyrus in the temporal lobe right around 
on here has a neural network that specializes in recognizing faces, you know, two dots, a nose and a mouth, you know, maybe some kind of oval outline, something like that. And we're really good at that, right? So there's that. Then add to patternicity, agenticity, the tendency to infuse those patterns with agency, intentional agency. There's something behind that. Now, my thought experiment on this in the believing brain was, imagine you're a hominid on the plains of Africa three and a half million years ago. And you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? So if, if you assume the rustle in the grass is a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, that's a type one error, a false positive. You made a mistake, but it's a low cost error to make. You just become more skittish and move away. But if you make the opposite error, if you assume the rustle in the grass is just the wind and it's a dangerous predator, you're lunch. You've just been given a Darwin Award for taking yourself out of the gene pool early. So I'm arguing that natural selection created a uh, a, kind of a, a, a neural cognitive sensory apparatus system to detect patterns no matter what, just in case. And, 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 but, but let's ask, what's the difference between the wind and a dangerous predator? The wind is an inanimate force. A dangerous predator is an intentional agent, and his intention is to eat me, and that can't be good. So we infuse... Um, these patterns with agency. So, you know, uh, 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 you know, animism and spiritism and mo polytheism and monotheism and, you know, aliens and demons and, and witches and, and, and gods and so forth. These are all even conspiracy theories. These are all kind of intentional agents behind the scenes, pulling the strings, making things happen because nothing, you know, everything happens for a reason. Nothing happens by chance. These are very common phrases. Believers, almost everybody really uses because it it feels that way and you know the idea of, of a statistical analysis of the probabilities of randomness in the economy or in the weather or any kind of system we deal with in the modern world that's pretty new that's like within a century century and a half at most that we've kind of grasped that a lot of what happens in the world is random or it's based on these uh, kind of probabilistic things. So we get wrong so many things, all the way from the simplest things like the gambler's fallacy, where, you know, red has come up six times in a row, therefore black is due, or, you know, something like, or the opposite. Or red has come up six times in a row, so I'm on a hot streak, so I should bet on red. Okay. You know, the, the roulette wheel has no memory of what it just did. <laughs> so each, each roll of the roulette wheel is independent. And, and therefore, the, the, the odds are the same each, with each roll. They're not going to accumulate out. But the brain doesn't see that. The brain just sees there's some pattern here. I got six reds in a row, so something's going on here, right? All the way to, you know, how we interpret the weather or the economy. You know, we just find these, these meaningful patterns. And, you know, the, even something like insurance companies um, and how they evaluate risk, you know, that's pretty new. That's like within a century or so of really fine models that accurately predict what's going to happen collectively. We evolved over millions of years without anything like that, even remotely existing, right? Richard Dawkins calls this middle land, that we evolved in the middle land of the plains of Africa, where you know we're used to seeing things of a middling size, say from ants to mountain ranges, and they move at a middling speed, like you know the, the snail crawling, or, you know, the weather or something like this. You don't see continents drifting. You don't see 100-year patterns in, in, in the weather. You know, you don't see light moving because it's so fast. You can't detect it. 
that it even has a speed or expanding universe or quantum physics. These things are all completely counterintuitive because there's nothing in our brain to hook it onto. Like it's like that. Really, much of physics is not like anything <laughs> that you can glom onto. And the same thing with the economy. You know, the you know one of the difficulties of accepting you know, free markets and capitalism is that it just feels counterintuitive. Like, uh, how is it I'm going to profit from you profit? And, you know, how does this, I don't see that, you know, because in, in the ancestral environment of our hunter-gatherers, there was no free market. There was no invisible hand. There was no wealth that could be distributed or anything like that. Everybody was relatively poor, you know. So, the again, the ideas behind a modern economy are counterintuitive, which, you know, to get to your your point there that uh, there's very little about the modern world that we intuitively grasp. So that's why we need science. That's why we need education and, and literacy. And, 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 you know, people need that information to override their instincts about the world. Yeah, I think I read somewhere, uh, somebody writing that um, the, the complexity of the modern world has outpaced our ability to understand it with our stone age brains i think that's a yeah that's right yeah. um so covid is resurging throughout the world but uh, i think it's fair to say uh, that the united states in, in specifically has been really underperforming um yeah yeah and, uh, um, what i want to ask you is what do you think is behind that is our government particularly inept or do you think that Americans differ from other people, maybe Canadians or Europeans, in a sense that we are more rebellious or more distrustful of our government uh, and therefore unwilling to follow the diktats that the government throws in our way. Have you given some thought? Yeah, I like the interpretation by my friend and colleague, uh, Michelle Gelfand, who is a cultural psychologist who studies tight and loose cultures. So tight cultures are cultures where most of the people most of the time obey the laws and rules and uh, they have kind of a more homogeneous uh, perspective of their nation, their culture, and what they stand for, and they're more in unison together about that. Whereas loose cultures, so tight cultures like Germany, Japan, loose cultures like the United States, um, I, I can't think of some others at the moment, but um, where... Uh, we're more. Huh? Britain didn't do that. Yes, well. yes, Britain. Britain yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Italy, Italy would be another example. Um, there, we kind of feel like whatever the government tells me, you know, that's sort of a suggestion. You know, I can take it or leave it, and and if I don't feel like it, I'm not gonna do it. You know, that's kind of a loose culture thing, uh, <laughs> and Americans are more like that. So, you know, most people seem to respect. Um, Anthony Fauci, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, he's a smart guy, but damn it, I'm not wearing a mask because I'm an American. Okay, what? You know, again, back to my, you know, problems with understanding what freedom means, I should be free from your germs, uh, just like you should be free from wearing a mask. So, you know, something's got to give when the principle of harm is what is what matters. You know, you're not free to harm other people and germs can, your germs can do that. But Americans, even though they may grasp that conceptually, um, they feel emotionally or intuitively like I don't, I shouldn't have to do that, and so I think that's caused, you know, because if you look at the graphs of uh, of our closing down, just just after Europe started to close down, like in Germany, for example, and then our rates were plunging just like they were in European countries, 
but then the moment that we you know we started to reopen things where people were out and about without their masks you know and i don't just mean the protests and and the blm movement or, or or any of that but just you know just going to the beach just going to bars and restaurants uh, there was, you know, footage on the nightly news every night for a month of just people just not wearing their masks. And you just didn't see that in European countries where they were wearing their masks because they were told that's what you should do. And I think that's largely going to come down to a huge, colossal um, mistake on our part that's going to harm our economy because, you know, we're we're back here in California. We're back shutting down now. You can't go into... Bars and restaurants are all closed except for uh, takeout or, or dining out on the sidewalk or in the street. And, uh, you know, that's not good, but that's the result of that. So I, I think that's that's the deeper issue. I don't, yeah, I don't think it's just incompetence on the part of the government. I mean, you know, the government, <laughs> you know, you could, you could certainly uh, uh, nail Trump on a number of, of points that liberals have and more um, centrist Republicans have nailed him for. But I, I don't think that's the deeper problem. I think it's this cultural difference. Yeah, I, I wasn't uh, specifically thinking only of Trump. I was thinking about Trump, uh, state governors, uh, legislatures, uh, basically the entire political system. Um, uh, when it comes to Europe, I'm, I, I'm wondering, though, if Europe wasn't already approaching a sort of um, uh, level of, of um, uh, closure um, and curfews that was not going to be sustainable in the long run. I, I, I'm just thinking yeah. that yeah. Um, I'd be very surprised. I mean, I myself have been going crazy. A lot of people I've been talking to have been going crazy under the lockdown. Yeah. And um, no, I also think that even with the best of intentions, at some point, the human devotion to um, um, staying in and trying to do the best will eventually evaporate and people will uh, do what they what they yeah, want to do, which, sure. which, yeah. which, yeah. which brings me to my next question. And that is that um, what is what do you think is the connection between the pandemic and the violence that we are seeing in the streets? Um, I mean, all that pent up energy, uh, not to mention increased concern over our economic future, um, surely has a role to play in the riots, don't you think? Yeah, maybe. I, uh, I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. I'm not sure how to test it because it's it's a one-off event. You know, these the, the, you know, the BLM movement, they're not going to say, we're out here because we're, we're tired of being indoors. You know, they say we're out here for social justice because of, uh, you know, Flo George Floyd and so forth and the other names. And, um, you know, they have a point. That's right. <laughs> but the critical point when it tips over from nonviolent protesting to violent protesting, riots and burning federal buildings and breaking Starbucks windows and all that craziness. This is not good for moral progress. That That's the worst thing you could do. It turns people against your movement and it rarely succeeds in getting what you want. As we know from the research on this, nonviolent protests work far more than violent protests do. And, uh, uh, and, and But, you know, people don't know that or they don't care because they're not out there with a particular goal in mind in a, as a strategy. Like Dr. King's um, marches and boycotts were very specifically targeted to certain cities with certain mayors or states with governors that were very racist and, and did it in a way to get maximized the uh, media coverage of it 
all to get the laws changed. It was all orchestrated very carefully. That's not not at all what we're seeing now. Now it's just a mass of people just going down there. Probably half of them. I'm I'm guessing ninety percent of them. You know, have no political ideology at all involved in it. They just want to mix things up and burn things down and and just you know have a have a riotous good time and kick some ass and you know whatever. You know, or they or they just kind of generally anti. Oops, I lost to there. Okay, there we go. Or they're just generally anti-authority of any kind because um, they're not very consistent about being, um, you know, anti-authority when, um, you know, when when the violence starts and they want the police to protect them or whatever. But, you know, consistency is not, I think, part of these kinds of uh, protests, unfortunately. Well, that's a very good segue to the next question I wanted to ask you. So when George Floyd was killed, um, most of Americans, almost all Americans, um, saw it as an unjustifiable uh, yeah. murder and um, they, they want justice to be done. And that's, of course, how the riots uh, have started. Um, but today, the protest agenda seems to be going well beyond simple calls for justice and uh, it includes attacks on freedom of thought and expression um, even reason and argument are being attacked as being expressions of some kind of white domination uh, right. of, the yeah. Yeah. of the culture I've seen some of the tweets so what is behind these sentiments where do they come from and uh, what do you what do you think is going on well, that, I think, is an extension of the postmodernism and critical theory that's been around for decades, uh, that's you know, come to the fore in recent years more and more, but it, it, it's been around since the 80s, really, and certainly the 90s. Um, this idea that there's no objective truth and that everything is kind of a contest between um, groups for power. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it sort of starts with a Marxian interpretation where it's a class warfare, but clearly that didn't pan out. Nationalism was, was much stronger than socioeconomic class as a motivating factor in the First and Second World Wars, for example, and, and, and the proxy wars during the Cold War. Uh, class had nothing to do with it. You know, Marx was wrong about that. But the left has instead glommed on to other you know, so-called identity politics, other forms of identity instead of your class. Your skin color and your 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 gender and and all the others, and um, so I think that's what we're seeing expressed now. So you see this weird. I saw this weird thing on the one of the BLM web pages that they're they stand against the nuclear family. I'm like, what does that got to do with anything that they're, you know, George Floyd and and, and police brutality and, you know, it, it, it's clear. You're right. Everybody agreed. You know, George Floyd. That was a, a clear injustice. I didn't see a single conservative try to rationalize away the the police violence in that. Everybody that seemed to be a universal agreement. They could have got, they would have just restricted it to that and the and the, and the few other names that were that were were at the forefront there. That could have led to some real immediate police reform because clearly that was a problem. There are obviously there are some cops who should be nowhere near having a gun and a badge they, they shouldn't they are bad people and uh but but then the moment you start that then you start expanding kind of a mission creep well you know if some police are like that maybe they're all like that N not 
personally this guy, this guy, this guy, but the systemic racism in all of police. Then all of a sudden you, you, you expand to all policing is bad. Just the very idea of policing. Whoa, wait a minute. You know, that, that now it goes too far and then, then you lose most of your audience that would have supported you otherwise. I mean, black lives matter. Yes, they do. Uh, but then you throw in this other stuff. The why the nuclear family? Because the rate of of um, uh, unwed um, births in the black community is I don't know something like seventy seventy five percent now. Um, and so you know, the, it, r rather than remedying that or treating it as just a freedom issue, you can you're free to do whatever you want. It's like no, having a nuclear family with a, a married couple that's a white thing and they have more power therefore we have to be against it and all of a sudden you're you've gone down some path almost nobody's going to support you on so i think that 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 was disappointing to me to see the blm movement kind of move in that direction because otherwise i, I would support it you know if you just say do black lives matter i go yes absolutely black lives matter or if you want to say it black lives matter too just like other lives yes absolutely you know but then you throw in all this other stuff defunding the police or or, or all policing or or even objective truth, reason, and science um, is a form of white suppression. It's like, you've just lost your mind if you think that. <laughs> you know, the fact that it developed in the Western world, at least uh, along one particular pathway, uh, that doesn't make it white or white supremacist or, or oppressive at all. Um, th therefore, th th that's an example of it going way too far. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, the, the, the last point about, you know, objective truth, that's uh, that's something that has been around for a while. I, I seem to recall around 2014 or 2015, um, people started talking about things like your truth uh, as opposed yeah, to yeah. Or <clears throat> truth, as opposed to real truth and that sort of thing. And it seems to me that if there is, um, uh, that there are, a certain number of um, of advances that humanity has made um, that should be applicable universally. Among them, of course, is uh, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, but also uh, um, reason uh, and and using reason to discover truth um, as a, as as an objective matter. Yeah, so, yeah. why are these things important? Why are these things important for? Uh, uh, for human progress and and in general and COVID specifically, uh, I know this is an easy question for you, but I still would like you to answer it because um, a lot of people who might be watching this podcast may be young and don't really appreciate, um, you know how how progress in the world is made. Yeah. How do we discover uh, vaccines? How do we move forward? And and how human progress would be compromised if we didn't rely on freedom of speech and reason and expression. So could you sort of take us home by by uh, talking about that question? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the problem is, uh, well, human progress comes from solving problems. Uh, that's it. In a nutshell, pretty much every step in human progress has been to solve some particular problem. And the general sort of underlying reason for that is, is, is the second law of thermodynamics or entropy. That is, everything is running down. There are far more ways for things to go wrong than right. There's far more ways for things to be disordered than ordered. And therefore, uh, the first, first, the second law of thermodynamics is the first law of life, as I say, that is to carve out some niche of order uh, in a chaos of, of entropy. And, 
you know, just simply, you know, clean your room every morning because if you don't, your room will get cluttered and, you know, wood rots and, and metal rusts and bodies run down and, and so forth. And in that sense, things like poverty, they don't need an explanation. That's what you get if you do nothing. Uh, poverty is the normal state of things. Uh, prosperity is the hard thing to explain. And that requires some spe very specific anti-entropy or call it extropy as the, as the extropians call it. Um, and, and so just from, from there, everything we do is, is in a way kind of pushing back against entropy and solving particular social problems or medical problems, public health problems, whatever. And, um, and, and so, and, and, but that then requires understanding causality. That is, what is the cause of prosperity or what is the cause of plagues? What is the cause of physical, uh, disability or, or, or whatever, that requires an understanding the cause of things. And that is the kind of the, the realm of science and reason, science and philosophy, whatever you want, uh, you want to describe it. That is um, figuring out, does X cause Y? Does A cause B? I mentioned patternicity earlier. That is, our brains uh, have a tendency to just connect A to B no matter what. What David Hume called constant conjunction. A happens, then B happens. A happens, then B happens. You do that three or four times, the brain goes, okay, there's a causal connection there. A causes B. Right? That's the normal way of thinking. But oftentimes they don't. They're just they're just accidentally causally um, connect or, or or just correlated but not caused, and therefore you need some mechanism to test it. How can we figure out if it's just a random pattern that my brain thinks is real, or it's not real? And uh, and the answer is science. <laughs> There's you know some uh, an experimental method, a way of testing a particular claim, like we saw during uh, early days of COVID. Does hydro hydroxychloroquine attenuate uh, or even prevent COVID-19 if you get the virus, or maybe even prevents or prevents the SARS-CoV-2 virus from taking hold? Okay, nobody knew. There was a few studies that suggested this or that. Well, then we put it to the test. Within two months, we had an answer. It doesn't work. Okay, so um, you know that that just take that principle and just apply it to everything. You know, what's the cause of war? What's the cause of uh, civil wars? What's the cause of violence? Why do people commit homicides and so on? Uh, those are the kinds of things we want to know so that we can therefore attenuate them or, you know, make them better for human flourishing. And, uh, and, and so pretty much everything we all today experience that is positive for human flourishing is due to somebody figuring out the cause of the thing we don't want or the thing we do want. And, and figuring it out necessitates freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Oh, yes, right. That's the other element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because nobody's omniscient, right? I'm I, I, not even Anthony Fauci's omniscient. <laughs> Everybody's wrong about uh, many, a great many things. So the only way to find out is is to try your ideas out in the marketplace of ideas, or just mention them to your spouse or your friend, or go to a conference and present them at a at a convention or conference to your peers, or publish them in a peer reviewed journal, or publish them in a book, or go on a podcast and and tell people about your ideas, and then allow questions or comments to to, to flow after that. The reason for that is because um, it's if you work in isolation, it's too easy to go down a side path that turns out to be to lead to nothing. Uh, and and it's, it's it's better to catch it early before you've gone off the rails, and the only way to do that is to engage with other people. So free speech is really the foundational right of all other rights. Because the only way for me to figure out what the other right should be is if I 
uh, present them uh, to other people that are interested in also solving problems. You know, so like if you look at the Federalist Papers in, uh, you know, the years leading up to um, the writing of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, you know, this is what they were doing. They were bouncing ideas off each other. Well, I think we should do this. No, not, let's not count that as a right. Let's count this as a right. And, you know, how do you know? Well, you do it by by uh, uh, debate and disputation, argument, discussion, conversations, and so on. And nothing should be off the table. Um, you know, you're free to say whatever you want. And, uh, you know, you're going to get, of course, crazies coming out of the woodwork with that. OK, they'll, you know, the Alex Jones with their conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook being an inside job or you know, whatever, 9-11. Um, you, you're going to get that. But we have to allow that. And in, in any case, the, the response to bad ideas like that is better ideas. No, 9-11 was not an inside job. And here's how we know. And then he can put he puts his evidence out. I put my evidence out, and you can decide for yourself. I even do that with the Holocaust deniers, which is a pretty odious, uh, disgusting, really idea that's offensive to Jews, of course. But um, rather than just call them anti-Semites, which a lot of them are, that's irrelevant. How? Why are they wrong? You know, how do you know that that the Holocaust happened the way we think that it happened? Well, I wrote a book about this. You know, so uh, to me, the response to people like David Irving, who's a you know, a pretty strong a proponent of Holocaust denial or revisionism, as he calls it. He's wrong. And I've pointed out a great many times all the different places that he's wrong. Uh, that's the way to de deal with it. And that's what we did. And, you know, that's why he's kind of fallen, uh, fallen out of favor and he's largely disappeared. And that's the way to treat ideas like that. So I really liked what you said about uh, free speech being the foundational freedom on, on which uh, others are based. And uh, I think that's a great way to conclude our podcast. I'm deeply grateful to you for taking the time to talk to us and uh, stay healthy and stay safe. Thank oh, you very well. much. I will, Marion, and, and let me take a moment to thank you for your important work. The, you know, the human progress side is, is, is I go to it all the time, and particularly when I need cheering up. Like, is there some good news here today? Can I find something the good that happened? <laughs> now, I think it's important we, you know, we 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 be data driven. Uh, you know, our world and data, your site, you know, our site, skeptic.com. So, on, you know, we, we try to base our decisions on on information and, and particularly long term trends. Uh, are important.